Welcome once again to By Grace Community Church. We're thrilled that you're here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open to 2 Samuel. Today we're going to return to our study there in the 15th chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Just as we sang, may we also pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive his word. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is such of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Gesher in Aram, saying, if Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet and say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men for Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence. They didn't know anything. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for, Ahithropel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house, and all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own home. 
You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may Yahweh show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then and pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are gathered here in your name. We are gathered here as your people to hear you speak. Lord, we leave intricate and complex lives. Lord, we know the highs of joy and the lows of fear and despair. Father, all of us know what it is to fear loneliness, to be lonely. All of us know what it is to wonder about the loyalty of their friends or the affections of their leaders. Father, come and meet with us today that you might dispel our fears, that you might prove yourself true. Father, come in mercy and grace and pour yourself and your spirit out upon your people. We thank you, we love you, and we need you desperately. Come and meet with us, we ask, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people agree. Taking what doesn't belong to you. We've all done it, true? Whether as children in a drugstore grabbing gum that we haven't paid for, whether it's our friends who are stealing from Walmart or Leechmere, whatever the case might be, we know people who steal out of greed, we know people who seize out of fear. We know people who feel guilty in their thefts, and we know people who see and feel no guilt, no error in what they're doing. Today, as we begin to enter into this 15th chapter of 2 Samuel, we do so remembering God's judgment all the way back from 2 Samuel chapter 12. In verse 11, the Lord in judgment against David for Bathsheba and Uriah, he says, behold, I will raise up trouble against you of your own house. Absalom is the living embodiment of this judgment and consequence. Absalom has done vile and abhorrent things. His evil is known and remembered, and yet, because of political maneuvering, it was more expedient to welcome him home than it was to judge him in righteousness. The people suffer when the judges are not righteous. 
and their judgments are unrighteous. This is the growing development and this magnification. Sin almost never stays within a house. It spreads. It spreads like gangrene. Absalom, in returning to Jerusalem, still had a fractured relationship with his father, the king. And that relationship has not healed. They've learned how to be silent about their disagreements. They've learned how to not give voice to their anger. And resentment grows. Resentment grows. Always. It never pauses and it never shrinks. It's either removed by the God of grace, it's welcomed in forgiveness to depart, but it does not of its own accord dissipate. Not ever. We're going to see this unfold in growing degrees of magnitude. So here we have at the start Absalom exercising some wealth and power, gathering for himself in verse 1, chariots and horses, and, you know, it's nice to have a whole bunch of people who go with you wherever you go. A paid posse is a posse nonetheless. So here he is, gathering the symbol of power, but not too great, not too lavish. For he wants to be, and this is always in the politician's handbook, an everyday man. He does not want to be seen as high and mighty, just resourceful and having a degree of power. Listen to it unfold in verse 2. Absalom used to rise early. In other words, this is his custom. He rises early and he goes to the gate. And when people come as plaintiffs to dispute their claims, in other words, they come and bring their case before the king, who will then render judgment, he meets them before they get to David. This is deliberate. This is a deliberate manipulation. Make no mistake. He comes to the gate and meets every plaintiff. Notice, he does not meet with defendants. He doesn't meet with the people who have been abused. He meets with the people who are coming for judgment. These are all the plaintiffs. So they come and they meet with Absalom before they meet with the king. Now look at the pattern here. Right here in the end of verse 2, Absalom would call out to, he, to, to them. And he would say, this is a, a rehearsed speech. This is like the telemarketer you can't get off the phone with. Because they have the outline discussion. If you present objection 7, they read the response of objection 7. You guys know what I'm talking about? Ugh. From what city are you? Absalom would call out. And they would reply, your servant is, listen to this language, of such and such. It doesn't matter where they're from. He's not trying to build real relationship based on real geography or lineage. This is just rote pattern. There's no authenticity here. There's nothing genuine in here other than he's trying to win favor and trick everybody into thinking that he is a better king than David. 
what city are you? And they would say, your servant's from such and such, a tribe in Israel. And Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right. But unfortunately, it's great when a leader plays the unfortunately card, right? Oh, I'm sorry, unfortunately, it's going to be really hard for you to get justice in this court. What's the assumption there? That the judge is fault-worthy. Every plaintiff has a perfect case filled with righteousness and goodness. Uh, Hey, Jacob, does every plaintiff, Kara, does every plaintiff come with a good and righteous case? Aren't the dockets filled with fluff and nonsense? Look at the degree of their nodding. Don't nod more, your heads are going to fall off. (laughs) But Absalom's never met a plaintiff whose case he didn't like, whose urge he would disagree with. So here's the line. There's no man designated by the king to hear you. You're going to get no empathy in this court. David doesn't care. Verse 4, Absalom would then reply, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. All right, pause at this point. How much easier is that to say than to do? It's, It's easy to say, oh, I would render justice, but When are human lives super simple? When is any person just one thing? Right? Aren't we complex? And if we're complex, then the way we relate to one another is going to be complex. Yes? Ask the IRS what complexity looks like. Better yet, ask a wealthy accountant what the IRS tax code looks like. Right? As soon as you get into civil and just society issues... The complexity meter grows through the roof. Just like parents who add more kids to their family, there's more complexity at times. Because where do you go if nobody can agree on where we go for dinner? It becomes complex. Or the kids just don't get a vote and mom and go where mom and dad go where they want. <laughs> Tells you a lot about no. Um, <laughs> Oh, I would just give justice. This is in the politician's playbook, isn't it? He doesn't actually have to explain the justice that he would have to give. He doesn't actually have to make any of the hard decisions. He can just tell everybody that, of course, they would win the case. And, of course, their side is perfect and without error. And the other side is cruel and erroneous. That's easy to say. I remember as a young kid, this will date me. But I I remember the election where Ross Perot was a candidate. And hopefully it's been long enough that I'm not stepping on too many toes. But I remember watching a presidential debate as a kid, just utterly baffled why this guy was on the stage. I knew he's a wealthy businessman. He'd probably made many great choices in his life. But his line was basically this. Well, America is like a car. And when the car's not functioning right, you just lift up the hood, fix it, and then everything will be right. 
And then people would respond, well, how do you fix it? Oh, that's easy. It's easy? Yeah, it's easy. Okay, well, how is it easy? Oh, I just call in the experts, and they tell us what to do, and we do it, and it's fine. That sounds so great, doesn't it? I'll be the one guy who fixes everything. Well, how will you fix it? According to what priorities? What entanglements could obscure your way? Oh, I just bring in the experts. Okay, well, who are the experts? Oh, I don't know yet. I'm not president. Make me president, and I'll find the experts, and it'll be great. Really? You're in a national platform, and that's the best you've got? I'm not making fun of people who want a simple solution to complex problems. Don't we all want that? That's easy to want. It's universal among men and women and children. It's hard because we're hard. It's hard because things get murky quickly. Not God's law gets murky quickly, but the derivative application of that law can be incredibly difficult at times. Now, let's be clear. There are many times that the law of God is clear and we are disobedient. But there are also times where the law is clear and the application is more obscured. So here's Absalom. All we got to do, fellas, is replace the king and all will be well in the kingdom. Justice and, and mercy will flow if I hold the scepter. This is what he's saying in verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. I just fixed the car. Awesome. There's no mention of how or according to what. Vagary is a genuine tool of villainy. Leading in vagueness is not always a tool of villainy. Sometimes it's a reminder of honest complications. But in, a, in an unworthy politician's playbook, vague covers villainy. Verse 5. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, this is the second play in the playbook, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Literally, we've been kissing babies and grown men as long as we've been around. This is the politician's playbook, right? How many times do you see the president jump out of his fortress car, walking along with his you know, sunglassed armory around him, and he's walking the line and shaking hands and kissing babies and all that stuff. What's he trying to do? He's trying to be a man of the people. Bill Clinton is known for a few things. One of them is that he loved McDonald's. How is that a thing? I wasn't 20 when I learned that. And it stays with me. Why? Because it's an everyday thing. You know what it is to want a McRib or a, a quarter pounder or the French fries, best French fries around, unless you're at Pops with cash. Right? 
Isn't it great? Isn't it awesome when a politician is like, I eat at the restaurants you eat at? Really? I mean, you might visit a restaurant that I eat at, but is that really a regular part of your life or is that a piece for publicity's sake? Trying to make their high status dissolve before your eyes is a tool in the politician playbook. Again, I'm not trying to pick sides in the politics. I'm trying to help us understand that these are tools in the playbook and they've been around for millennia. And Absalom is making use of them. He comes to where they are, to their hour of need, and embraces them and kisses them. This affection is a sign of trying to ingratiate himself. Now, do we want dispassionate leaders? We want them to be passionate for truth and the people, right? But here it's a facade, it's a game. This is how we're told this in verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole their hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, he literally did this for an entire American election cycle. For four years, he's at the gate early, hugging and kissing and claiming justice. It is easy to complain about a justice system when you have nothing to offer for its solution. In fact, if played shrewdly, complaining about justice can line your pockets quickly with all kinds of favor or wealth or power, and then you walk away. You don't have to solve the problem. You just get rich yelling about it. That playbook is still around. So what do we do? How do we know who's yelling about injustice because they genuinely care about injustice and who's clamoring about injustice in the system with no desire or plan to change anything. This is hard. Uh, Injustice should be something that the church rails against. True? Aren't we supposed to be the people among all other people who most love truth, who most exhibit empathy and compassion? Yes. It can also make us easy marks. So how do we sort that out? I don't have a simple answer for you on a Sunday morning. But I do have one kind of guideline that Liz and I use. This doesn't come from the word of God. This comes from the mind and heart of our lives. We generally try to help the thing that's in front of us and let God judge motives and intent and purposes. So if you need money, I'll give you money. And you'll stand before God for what you do, both in how you represented your need for it and how you use that money that you're given. Does that make sense? If you have a better way, come tell me. I'm interested. I want to live mercifully and justly, loving truth 
and loving people. Absalom doesn't. It's a trick. And in verse 6, we see that it's a trick. When we read Absalom, quote, stole the hearts, quote, of the men of Israel, it's an idiom that translates very difficultly into English. Because it's not really about affection, but when we talk about affairs of the heart, we're always talking about affection. This is really saying Absalom tricked the people of Israel. He duped them. And you can see this again in Scripture. We have to see how these phrases are used. In Genesis 31, verses 20, and then again referenced in 26, you'll see the word tricked. The literal is when Jacob stole Laban's heart. But if you follow the footnote, the meaning there is duped or tricked. So when you see the same idea repeated in verse 26, we get the definition. You see the word tricked. Does that make sense? So Absalom is not here as a great candidate and the people are swelling in favor and affection out of love. It's that the, the man that he presents and the man that he is don't relate. They're not honest. Absalom is in a brilliantly presented facade. He does not have genuine affection. He feigns at it. He does not have real equality with the people around him. He feigns it. And this is the politician's playbook. You want to look like equals, and you want to display an affection that lets people think that you care about them. All the while, you steal from them, you manipulate them, and you're doing it all for your own good, not for theirs. So when you read here in verse 6 that he stole the hearts, do not think that there's a swell of affection. Understand that he's tricking everybody and that that plot will be found out. It's just going to take a moment. So this is a four-year cycle, we're told in verse 7. Absalom says to the king, oh my gosh, this is really hard for me. And it's because of my profession and my passion. But he's going to use religious verbiage, religious ritual as a scheme to overthrow the government. He wants to coup. And he's going to cover his coup with worship. Ugh! It makes me scream and grunt and say things in my head. I can't say things out loud. Please let me go. And pay my vow, which I vowed to Yahweh in Hebron? Do you remember that time, King David, where I was allowed to be nearby and back in Israel, but I wasn't allowed in your presence? Yeah, oh, in the sincerity of my worship to our holy God, I need to go back there and do what I promised to do. Please help me in my religious worship of our God. Verse 8, for your servant vowed a vow, 
while I lived in Gesher in Aram, and saying, if Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. Does it ever sound better than that? Please let me go and go to church. I vowed I would go to church. Can you please let me go to church? I promised I'd go to that Sunday school. Can I go to the Sunday school? Can I go to the kingdom group? Can I be in Bible study? What's David supposed to say? No. Sorry, no worshiping Yahweh today. No, no. So David says what anyone would say. Go in peace. How ironic is that? Go in peace? Go how? How? In peace. Is he going in peace? Is he going to have peace with his God? Is he going to have peace with the king? Remember, Yahweh and David are tied together. David is the Lord's anointed. So when he goes to overthrow David, what's he also doing? He's acting in full rebellion, putting his hand against the Lord's anointed. Do you remember all the way back when David and Saul were in a cave together? And, and David's there, knife in hand, and Saul's asleep in front of him, and he could wipe out and execute all of his problems with a six-inch slice? And what's David say? I can't put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Is his son as honorable as he is? Is his son as, as faithful to Yahweh as David is? No. Not remotely. David says, go in peace, and Absalom's like, great, I'll go in rebellion. So Absalom arose, and he goes to Hebron. But here's the plot. In verse 10, but Absalom sends words to the, and messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel. Remember, because it didn't matter what tribe they were from, he was building false allegiance with them. And say to them, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then know that Absalom is king in Hebron. I can call myself king all I want. I can have thousands of people call me king. Am I king? No. David is king in Israel. No matter what Absalom says or does, David is king in Israel. But the people will now chant, Absalom is king at Hebron. Does that sound familiar? Who was made king in Hebron? David was. He's literally going back to David's rising moment, expecting himself to replace his father. Verse 11, so Absalom takes 200. Now, this is important. The 200 guys that he takes, some or most or maybe even all of them are innocent to this plot. You just invite the nobles when you're going to do things. It's a protection for them, right? They won't be subject to the siege of Jerusalem if they're already out at Hebron with him. So it's politically expedient, but they at this point don't know the plan. That's where you get, they went in their innocence knowing nothing. Verse 12, Absalom is offering those sacrifices that he had talked about. But as he does so, he sends for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, 
David's counselor from the city of Gilo. This is a, a small city in Judah at the time. So he's basically sending for one of David's advisors who's nearby. And the conspiracy, I don't like the use of this word here, because conspiracy is generally thought to be something of the mind in our culture. We have conspiracy what? Theories. No matter how true they become later, we call them, uh, ask Twitter, sorry, can't help it. And the conspiracy grew strong. What he's saying here is that the rebellion grew strong. It's the rebellion that's growing. And people are joining into this conspiracy. And here's the end statement, summary thought. The people with Absalom kept increasing. So this groundswell of political theory, uh, political work is actually being effective. So now David has to flee. And this is kind of the second half of the chapter, even though it's not by volume, it is by structure. Verse 13, a messenger comes to David saying, here's the quote, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. I ask you, is this about affection? No, it's trickery. In fact, in this case, it's treachery. They're not just duped. They're going to be in a dire situation because they're rebelling not just against David, but against the one who named David as king in Israel. This is rebellion against Yahweh. So verse 14, how does David respond? Well, your heading gives it away. David says to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us what? 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 Why? He's king. He is king. He's king. Can you imagine David in this moment going, I hate that little so-and-so, such-and-such venom, wrath, malice, like every dad has towards their child at some moment? Or is it just me? Oh, mom's included. I got some moms going. Yeah, me too. It doesn't mean we don't love you. It just means in that moment we don't love you. Yeah. So we repent too. Don't worry, kids. Be David in this moment. This is my son. This is my unfavored but I thought restored son. Upon whom in David's reign as king as he had more mercy than Absalom. Now my son is a political threat? This political theater is working? How dumb are my people? Said every king ever. But it's his son. And there's so much difficulty in their relationship already. Fathers and sons, on the best of circumstances, can be difficult. And they're far from the best of circumstances, true? Why does David flee? Why does David run? He's a better general. He's got more war experience. He's got more blood shed by his own blade than Absalom ever has or could have. 
David was brought up in the military. Why doesn't David stay and fight? Why doesn't David stay and fight? I'll give you two reasons. It would be unkind. It would be unkind. David has besieged a city before. He knows the destruction that it causes. David knows Jerusalem. David loves Jerusalem. David knows the prophecies and promises of Jerusalem. It is in the overflow of his kindness that he will not have his city sieged. They will walk away in exile. They will evacuate on their own terms. He saves countless lives and countless structures. Ask Ukraine what it's like to have your world sieged upon. You guys seen what those missiles are doing? Not just the death in people, but also the destruction that takes place there. People's homes and businesses literally blown to smithereens. David will not have Jerusalem destroyed. Because he loves Jerusalem and he loves Yahweh and he loves the people of Israel. Everything that Absalom is pretending to be, David really is. And it's in his kindness that he leaves. It's also, it's also in his wisdom that he leaves. In the hour of usurping insurrections and coup, who do you trust? Who do you, who do you trust? Does David know that those 200 were innocent? He, he can't. He can't. So it's actually wise for him to leave. It's wise because only an avid supporter in the hour this thing first happens, we'll go with him. There's no time to plant rogue agents in his midst. If they stay and try and fight and defend and then eventually evacuate, then you are easily in a position where you can't trust anyone. That's not where David wants to be and it's not where he finds himself. So David immediately says, flee, arise. This is David's first reaction in 14, arise. Let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us, that's the people, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. That's the city. David loves the people. And he loves the city, and that's why he self-exiles. So David leaves behind some in the house, and we move into 17, and the king went out and all the people after him, and then they halted at the last house. This is really awesome. David 
is leaving in kindness and wisdom. And part of that wisdom is an inspection of who's going with you. David leads the procession until you're at the edge of the people who are going to go with you. And then he stops and lets everybody pass by. Why? So that he can evaluate to the best of his ability the reasons, the motives, or the personhood of someone who's going with him. It's kind of a loyalty inspection. Does that make sense? And something awesome happens. Verse 18, all his servants passed by him and all the Chetherites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to, and this is an individual, Ittai, Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back, stay with, now this is amazing for David to have said. Go back and stay with the king. Go back and be part of the opposition to David. Why would David want Ittai to go? Isn't it better to have more swords, more soldiers, more people? Isn't that, you know, might is right kind of, don't you want more might in your right? David releases Ittai from his promise to serve him. And this is his rationale. Why do you also go with us? Go back. Stay with the king. Stay with this new regime. For you're a foreigner and an exile from your own home. You've already been forced away from your people out of allegiance to me. And that happened recently. Nobody's going to hold it against you. Nobody's going to suspect anything about you. Just stay. And do for Absalom what you would have done for me for your own protection. You're a foreigner and an exile from your home. Verse 20, you came, I love this metaphor, literally yesterday. But not literally, but like yesterday. You've only been here a tiny time, a short amount of time. Why would I make you wander around with us? I don't even know where we're going. Go back, David says, in love and mercy. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may Yahweh show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Why does David want that for him? Why does Ittai have this favor in David's eyes that he's praying and interceding, asking God to bless him? Because he's shown those same things to David. And David wants Yahweh to to return that love, to bless him in this blessing. But listen to Ittai. Ittai says, as Yahweh lives, as my Lord the king, who's king in Israel? Who's king in Israel? Ittai is speaking with the true king. As my Lord the king lives, Wherever my Lord the King shall be, do you hear the repetition? He's literally putting this in italics and bold print. That's what this repetition, this double statement means. As my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death 
or for life, there also will your servant be. I pledge my sword to the true king of Israel. And if I fall, I fall. And if we win, we win. I don't care about the outcome. I will trust that outcome to the only one who truly governs it in an absolute sense. Be David. Your son's rising up against you. This is years in the planning. And you have this fresh outsider, new on the scene, offering to David what his son should offer. Aligning himself with David when he has no other reason to do so. No power to gain, maybe death. This is not a great contract to sign. I'll go with you even if we die. You better be careful you sign that contract, right? Bilbo Baggins is a great example. Whatever the outcome, I'm with you. Proverbs 18. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. Who's Solomon's dad? This is awesome, right? David's own son gives us an insight into this moment that happened years before his son would write this. Proverbs 18, chapter 18, verse 24. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin. You read it. Read it again. Last time, do it again. Is that not what Ittai is offering? You're not going to hear this in many places, but I think this is the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Who sticks closer to us as a friend and a brother? Isn't that what Jesus claims to his disciples on the eve of his own crucifixion? No longer are you just my students and disciples now. You're my friends. Who's with you in every dark hour? Who is with you in every dire circumstance? Is there anyone who sticks closer to you? Is there anyone who loves you at more cost than Christ? This is beautiful what Ittai is saying as the outsider who comes inside and pledges life or death. Does not Jesus Christ do the same when he steps through the throne room of heaven to be born as a baby in a manger as we've celebrated for like six weeks now? David says to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. I love the sight of the little ones. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward what? How many times are the Israelites going to be in the wilderness? I'll tell you when Jesus comes back. 
We are the church in the wilderness. David is not leading them away from Yahweh. He is serving Yahweh. He is loving Yahweh's people. He is exercising the judicious wisdom and kindness that Absalom pretends to have. Because he really has it. He really has it. Ittai is so awesome in David's eyes that in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 2, David is going to put a third of his army under Ittai's command. Joab's going to get a third, and Ittai's going to get a third, and we'll get there when we get there. But I want you to hear David's receiving Ittai as a true Israelite. As a man of loyalty and honor, expressing, here it is, the Hesed way. The Hesed way. Love and favor and life. So what's the testimony of this text and why do I break it here? One, I break it for time. But also that I want you to understand that one of the ways that Yahweh supports you, one of the ways that God expresses his love and genuine care for you is to give you a friend who stands alongside you in the darkest hours of your life. He doesn't say it will always be there, but it is a common theme throughout the plan of redemption, throughout the life of God's people, whether in city or wilderness. That one of the ways that the Lord supports you is to give you a friend who stands alongside you in the darkest hour of your life. And how most notably is not Jesus our Redeemer and friend, the embodiment of that eternally. With me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have never forsaken us or neglected us. Forgive us for the times when we think we're alone, where you are so near. And Father, thank you. Thank you for the men and women who live in our lives, who taste our sorrows because their tears leak. Father, thank you for the brothers and sisters who stand by us, pray with us, care for us. Even in the hours we can't care for ourselves. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that in the darkest, deepest, worst, you are with us. Thank you that in the greatest of celebrations, on the days of most joy, you are just as present, just as good, just as wise, just as powerful. Our God in heaven, come, make yourself known to us that we might trust you more and more and more. And all God's people agree.